Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Not divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. It's episode 44 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We have an outstanding episode today highlighted by our Shine On Podcast featured guest, Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari. The interview that's coming up is incredible. Dr. Tracy is the author of the new book, Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You, Even Though It Feels Bad. She's an anxiety researcher in New York City and a psychology and neuroscience professor. The conversation with Dr. Tracy is as good as it gets. It's fun, insightful, and without a doubt, it will change the way you think about your life, how to tackle life's challenges, and it's going to provide a perspective that will pave the way for you to tackle anxieties of all type, relationships, work, whatever it may be. It's going to help you get a handle on how best to deal with anxiety, and most importantly, how you think about it. Producer Dave, happy August to you. I'll tell you what, you have a summer glow. You look fantastic. I mean, you know, people say I never give you a break. It looks like you're on vacation. It's a George Hamilton type tan. It's a permatan. I will not reveal whether it's real or fake. But uh, I assure you, even if I'm in the sun, I am working diligently on the Shine On podcast. Producer Dave, you are, and I know you have a great doctor prepared, so let's get right into it. All right, sir. And now. Let's see what's on the docket. Three terrific news stories today, Evan. First item comes to us from ABC News. Item one. ABC News reports the following. The 29-year-old woman was allegedly killed by her ex-husband in a murder-suicide on Monday after she talked about her divorce and healing journey on social media, according to the police. Disturbing case, Evan. Your thoughts. Dave, we start with an absolutely devastating and heartbreaking story. As you mentioned, a 29-year-old woman allegedly killed by her ex-husband in a murder-suicide after she opened up about her divorce and journey on social media. And reports are that Sonia Khan had opened up on TikTok about the divorce, and she was open about her marital struggles. And really, she tried to encourage women going through a divorce to find happiness, using social media as a platform to do it. And if you see red flags in a relationship, do not ignore them. She also talked about what it was like to go through a divorce as a South Asian woman and the pressure and the challenges associated with finally making the decision to leave her marriage. She was brave to open up and she was courageous and she wanted to encourage other women to feel the same way. And for this to happen, producer Dave, as you mentioned, absolutely terrible, devastating and truly sad. Next item concerns our friend Elon Musk coming to us from the Wall Street Journal. Item two. Journal reports Elon Musk's friendship with Sergey Brin was ruptured by an alleged affair. Elon Musk, the billionaire, of course, engaged in a brief affair last fall with the wife of Sergey Brin, prompting the Google co-founder to file for divorce earlier this year and ending the tech billionaire's long friendship, according to people familiar with the matter. I'm not surprised that the friendship ended over this, but your thoughts, Evan. (laughs) (laughs) Dave, you know I'm a creature of habit, and each and every morning 
as you know, I do before I get my daughter up for the day, I make a cup of coffee. I read the newspaper. Am I crazy? Or am I reading about Elon Musk each and every single day from Twitter to tech to Tesla and to now tearing apart marriages and relationships as the report suggests? Look, it's been one hell of a news cycle for Elon Musk, and it looks like it's only getting worse. You have the alleged affair between Musk and Nicole Shanahan, the wife of Sergey Brin. And as usually is the case, it's way more complicated. Mm. You have the business relationship. You have the friendship between Musk and Brin, the financial dealings, the investments by Brin and Tesla. And producer Dave, you know I love it. I absolutely love it when you line the docket with a story like this that has layers and layers. And we can talk about it. But let me ask you, what, what are your thoughts on, on a story like this when you hear about it and read about it with all the layers and the complicated you know, issues? Well, it goes to show you that the ultra wealthy have real problems just like the rest of us. You got <laughs> and, that right. <laughs> and and no matter, all his billions of dollars can't couldn't buy him out of this pickle he got in with his wife. And so in some ways, it's kind of the great equalizer. It's... I'll say this, though. I don't look forward to the reports about his divorce because I'm guessing if history repeats itself that such a high-profile divorce will be prolonged and, as you say, complicated. And, Dave, you took it right out of my mouth, and I I have the feeling we'll be talking about this article and this story on podcast episodes in the future. Poor Elon. Who cries for Elon Musk? Nobody. (laughs) Good. Uh, next, Next item comes to us from... People Magazine. Item three. People Magazine reports that the Big Bang Theory creator Chuck Lorre files for divorce from his third wife, Arielle Lorre, after three years. In a quote, it is much. It is with much mutual consideration and respect that we have decided to separate Chuck Lorre and wife Arielle wrote in a joint statement after he filed for divorce. Another high-profile high divorce. Your thoughts on this one, Evan? Dave, three times is a charm. Well, not for Chuck Lorre, who's apparently splitting up, as you mentioned, from his third wife after just three years. Maybe it's the pandemic stress. Maybe it's something else. But who knows? But let me say this. While marriage may not be Chuck Lorre's thing, you know what? He's got a prenup. I mean, Chuck Lorre gets it. Maybe not in the marriage department, but this guy knows how to sign a prenup and execute a contract because reports are that there is a prenup which should dictate how the divorce would be handled and the finances and assets. Good for him, not because he's splitting up, but because he had the foresight to know that if he did, you know, a prenup would absolutely be beneficial to him and the divorce going forward. And Dave, we've talked about on the podcast before, how many divorces, high profile divorces, celebrity divorces that we read about and hear about. And what do we hear? They didn't have a prenup. And what does that look like in terms of, the length of divorce, the fees that are spent in terms of litigation and the process, have a prenup. You'll be happy you had one in the end. Chuck Lorre, good for you. You had a prenup in place. And good good thing he did it, too, because Chuck Lorre is probably wealthy compared to the average Joe, but he he's not Elon Musk wealthy, I would guess. I mean, he's in entertainment, but done well for himself. But if you have an amount of wealth and it's cut in half in a divorce and then you have another divorce. And so your half is now cut in half. I'll take you a step further. Two and a half men and the big bang theory. I mean, you talk about syndication. I mean, you talk about royalties and income and, you know, I think you hit it right in the head. I mean, there's so many layers to it and the income stream and the wealth and 
you know, especially given the entertainment industry. By the way, which show do you think was better, Two and a Half Men or Big Bang Theory? I think Big Bang Theory was a little more inventive. Two and a Half Men certainly had its its moments, but but <laughs> I, I, I was a big Two and a Half Men fan. Yeah, it would it it was uh, Charlie Sheen at the peak of his powers. He even right. returned to the show after his meltdown, didn't he? But but <laughs> but you're right. There there are two ex wives of Chuck Lorre out there who get a big smile on their fa- their face every time they see a re- rerun of Two and a Half Men or The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> this this most uh, recent woman won't have that the pleasure of that, but I presume she she'll get something fair. She'll get something out of it. Dave, you could be a uh, you know divorce attorney with the way you're thinking. You, you know the mindset of you know Chuck Lorre's first and second wife. You know I I love it. We might have to get you on the uh, get you on the firm over here. <laughs> All right, I'll dust off my law license. We're up to the part of the program where Evan gives his thoughts on issues of the day. Today, we'll be talking about whether people in violent marriages shouldn't get divorced. The Cheyenne Spotlight. Dave, this week, we're going to shine a spotlight on Ohio Senate nominee J.D. Vance, and not for good reason. Let me set the stage. According to an article, the Ohio Senate nominee was talking to a high school in Southern California last September, and in response to a question from a moderator, according to the article by Cameron Joseph for Vice.com, Vance seemed to suggest that people need to be more willing to stay in unhappy marriages for the sake of their kids and stay in unhappy and unhealthy marriage, because marriage, it's a contract until death do us part. What an absolutely terrible message that no matter how toxic, how unhealthy, how horrific, how awful a marriage may be for you or your children, that you should somehow stick it out as you promised you would. And it would be detrimental to children and a cause of making kids unhappy if you got divorced. Now, when it comes to his view and the impact of unhealthy marriages and relationships on children, J.D. Vance is lost. This guy should pick up the phone and talk to the divorce doctor, Elizabeth Cohen, couples therapist, Ellen Bader, therapist, Catherine Woodward Thomas, trauma expert, Britt Frank, or recent podcast guest, Dr. Robert Stern, or so many of the incredible guests that we've had on the podcast, because despite what J.D. Vance may think in the message he seems to suggest staying in an unhealthy, unhappy marriage as the research and the data seems to suggest from all the experts that we've talked to on the podcast, this is not healthy for your children. You know, a divorce is a, is a contract in a manner of speaking anyway, if not, if not literally a legal contract, it is an agreement, a legal agreement. And when you enter into a contract, say you sign a 12 month lease and then six months into your lease, your mother gets sick in Arizona, and you just have to move out there. You have to. So what do you do? You break the lease. Now, there might be something in there where you have to pay a month's rent penalty, but that you're not going to have to pay the whole remainder of the thing. That's not the way contract law works. It Contracts are broken. Some people say contracts were made, made to be broken, and then there are remedies for that. So it's not a completely apples-to-apples apples comparison, but... When you enter into a marriage, most people enter into it, 99% enter into it with good faith. But things change, and there's no reason for people to remain miserable simply because of some agreement they made perhaps years ago. 100% agree, Dave. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On Podcast is Dr. Tracy Dennis-Tawari. 
Dr. Tracy is an anxiety researcher and author and founder of Wise Therapeutics, professor of psychology and neuroscience, and the co-executive director of the Center for Health Technology at Hunter College. She's been featured throughout the media, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, ABC, CBS, The Today Show, and Bloomberg Television. Dr. Tracy has a terrific book out this year, Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You, Even Though It Feels Bad. Dr. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Evan. Great to be with you. First, congratulations on the book. I know it came out in March of this year. has to be an incredibly exciting time for you. It's exciting. It's busy, but it's great having these conversations. Uh, and the book, honestly, is about changing the conversation about anxiety. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun for me. So let's get right into the book and dive right in. Tell us why the book is called Future Intense. So that is a pun intended title. It's really about highlighting from the get-go the fact that we have a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to anxiety. One of the biggest misunderstandings is that it's just the same as fear, or it's just about worry. And anxiety is much more than that. So a a nice distinction to make with fear is, is that fear, as you know, we know what it feels like, and fear and anxiety do feel similar sometimes, racing heart, maybe we're sweating, we're nervous. But fear roots you, roots us to the present moment. It means there's a threat. It's, you know, a dog about to bite you. It's uh, someone, you know, holding a knife to your throat, God forbid. And so it's really immediate. It's certain present threat. But anxiety doesn't work like that at all. Anxiety makes us into future time travelers, time travelers into the future mentally, but nonetheless. So we're thinking about what's coming around the bend in this uncertain future. We know that something bad could happen. So there is a potential threat on the horizon. But there's also, when you're anxious, still the possibility that something good could happen instead. So when I'm anxious about that job interview, I'm anxious in tomorrow, maybe. I'm anxious about it because I could bomb it. It could go terribly. But I could also crush it. And this is a job that I really care about because you're only anxious when you care. And it's something that I still believe, I'm not despairing about it. I still believe that I can do something to prepare to make that positive outcome into a reality, to really do a great job at this interview. So anxiety prepares us to make our dreams into reality in a way that fear and other difficult emotions don't. So it has that special, really profound and amazing quality to it that we don't really think about. We think about it as being aversive and terrible because it feels bad, which it does. It feels terrible. What was the experience of writing the book like for you? Well, it was interesting. So I, I sold the book, so to speak, got, you know, made the agreement with my publisher weeks before the pandemic. I mean, we were, we, I went to meet with- <laughs> Talk about, t- talk about time. <laughs> oh my God. I went to meet uh, with uh, Harper Wave is my wonderful publisher. They're a division of HarperCollins. I went to meet Karen Rinaldi and the whole team there. And we had just gotten these senses, oh, we've been reading about this virus. <laughs> and people had started wearing masks. You know, it was the end of February, whatever it was. And we're like, ah, we're going to hug anyway. I mean, it was probably a super <laughs> spreader event. But sure. So got the book deal. And really, it was over the pandemic, therefore, that I, I wrote this book. And one thing that was very clear to me is that anxiety was more relevant than ever before. Because if indeed, as I argue, anxiety is about the uncertain future, what describes our pandemic experience in some ways better than that. Really all this uncertainty heaped on us, not knowing what the future holds, everything changing you know, on a dime for, so many, for all of us, for the whole world. 
And so writing this book, you know, it kind of inspired me. It was hard. I actually ended up writing chapters and chapters and then had to throw everything out and start over again. <laughs> but, but anxiety helped me there because I was very anxious about that. But it really helped me understand that I cared about this. I needed to push through. I needed to fight this fight and really create a book that could, that could start conversations that help us challenge what re, really we mental health professionals have started to communicate and have for many, actually not started, have for many years communicated some very wrong, unhelpful, and even destructive ideas about anxiety. And so I was very motivated over the pandemic to try to be part of a, of a more helpful conversation, what I believe and argue is a more helpful conversation. And Dr. Tracy, we're going to talk about the pandemic. I have so many questions about the pandemic and anxiety and where we go from here. But anxiety, it often gets lumped into the conversation with depression, with stress, and other mental health issues. So what is your specific definition of anxiety? Anxiety is apprehension about the uncertain future. It's not just the feeling in our bodies. We all know, you know, most of the time we know what anxiety feels like. But anxiety as this apprehension about the uncertain future is on a spectrum. So it can be everything from that little tingle, that little tummy test when we know something's not quite right, or we're wondering what's going on, or we're we're on alert, right? All the way over to really being panicked about something. But it is a spectrum, and it's not the same as an anxiety disorder. And that's another really crucial distinction to make, because anxiety as an emotion, we can feel incredibly anxious every day, but we will not be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder unless the ways that we're coping with that anxiety are getting in the way of our life. So if I'm a socially anxious person, that means I fear the judgment of others, maybe public speaking, maybe doing podcasts is hard for me. Now I could feel a lot of anxiety, but that might actually also be information for me that, okay, this is hard, but I really care about this. And this is my body and my mind preparing to do something hard. But that doesn't mean I have an anxiety disorder. It's an anxiety disorder if I start canceling the podcast, not go, you know, refusing to, you know, to go out in public, um, not going to parties anymore because I feel awkward at parties. It's it's that coping, that way of get, of avoiding those challenges that are disrupting our ability to live a healthy, healthy, happy, socially connected, and you know, life, and to be able to work and play and do all the things we want to do. So the coping mechanisms, because I'm curious about that. Do those take place for people, and we'll get into medication and your thoughts and things that people can do in in their own lives, but how does one cope on a daily basis with anxiety in terms of that distinction before the anxiety that someone might experience, you know, let's say whether it's a podcast or public speaking, whatever it may be, before it turns into something like an anxiety disorder? The key is to not immediately avoid the experience of anxiety. And I, and, you know, this is, this book that I wrote is not a self-help book in a traditional sense. It's sort of a meta self-help book because what I profoundly believe in as a researcher for 20 years, as a clinical psychologist, as a neuroscientist, I know that there are great treatments out there for anxiety disorders. I know that we have great science-based self-help and I, for 20 years, have been trying to contribute to that body of work and these excellent solutions. But then I looked up just a handful of years ago and realized, wait a second, this stuff isn't working. You know, anxiety disorders are on the rise. They're the most common mental illness, mental health disorders, suicide, self-harm, all of this is on the rise and among our youth. So why is it that we can have great solutions and they're not working? This is the mystery. And I believe 
it's because this disease story that we tell of mental illness this this mindset that we have about our difficult emotional and stress experiences is setting us up for failure. It was actually, and if you, if you know, and I, I, I make an argument about this in the book, but just a few weeks ago, I actually got uh, some nice confirmation of this approach. Tom Insel, who used to be the director of the National Institute of Mental Health for about 10 to 12 years, he controlled $22 billion worth of funding to do mental health research. It's one of my main funders for my research. He was giving a talk at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and he wrote a book recently about the failure of the mental health industry. And he said, in no uncertain terms, he said, the disease model of mental illness doesn't work. What does that mean? The disease model is in like infectious disease. You find a virus, you find a, a heart that's not working, lungs that are diseased. You find the disorder, the disease, you eradicate it, and then you have health. But mental health doesn't work that way. So looping back to really answering your question more directly, the only way out and the only way to prevent emotional distress, like an anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, these kinds of, the only way out is through. You have to engage with those difficult feelings. You cannot avoid them. There's no way to avoid it and to come out. It's like, I'll tell you, don't think of a white elephant, right? Don't think of a white bear. That's that famous kind of, oh, right? Sure. And immediately it pops into your mind. <laughs> and it's a little oversimplistic, but that's how our emotions work. You have to work with them. You can't suppress them and think that you're going to solve any problems. So that is the absolute first step to understand you have to work with these emotions. They're not, because they're uncomfortable, doesn't make them dangerous. We are not fragile and we have the capability to engage with this difficult emotional experience as information, potentially. And then from there, once you're engaged, figure out what to do with it. Sometimes you need to see a therapist. Sometimes you need to exercise. Sometimes you need to go to the doctor to see if there's a medical condition. There's so many, sometimes you need to do yoga. You need to write poetry. I write very bad poetry, but I love it. It helps me. <laughs> Whatever, it helps works. Me. Whatever works. But, but you have to first engage with that and not believe that it's a dangerous, destructive thing to have a difficult emotion. Dr. Tracy, you mentioned the experience writing the book and, and the edits and, and the anxiety that you felt in terms of all that. So let me ask you, what is your typical level of anxiety on a scale of one to 10. And is there a number mm. that people associate with it's too high that should give somebody a concern when they think about it? That's fascinating. I think we're all, listen, we're New Yorkers, you and I, right? <laughs> so I think we, I think New Yorkers run on anxiety, like, you know, like fuel, right? A I little bit. Totally agree. <laughs> so there's, a, there are lots of individual differences just, you know, and I think the key is, you know, anxiety is a wave. It's energy. All of our difficult emotions are energy. We have to channel them. So the question is, what, you know, we can drown in waves, right? They can be overwhelming. We don't have the skills to swim in them. But we can learn to swim. And some of us are better swimmers than others from the get-go. And we can even surf. Like, I don't surf. I wish I could surf. But so a lot of the answer to your question is, what is a level of anxiety that you have come to expect? What are your skills? How have you, have you had opportunities and made opportunities in your life to actually build these emotional skills, much like we do exercise, right? So have you, you know, you don't like run, start running a marathon the first time you ever like put on sneakers and try, oh. to, try to run around the block, right? So it takes time to build emotional skills, just like it takes time to build physical fitness. But we don't think about anxiety that way. We think that as soon as we feel a, a sense of anxiety, 
it's a failure. It's a danger signal. It's, you know, we have to do something about it to squelch it immediately because that's what we mental health professionals have really taught people. And that's where we have actually, I think, been destructive when it comes to people's mental health. We've helped them believe that they're fragile. We've helped them think of emotions as a disease instead of muscles. So, you know, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, you might be familiar with his book, Anti-Fragility. He talks about things that gain from challenge and disorder. Our emotions are that way, just like our muscles are. If you don't work a muscle, it atrophies. If you don't strain and, and work hard to build your endurance as a runner, you will never learn to run. And it's the same with our emotions. So maybe we come into the world more anxious than others, but we have to figure out what our set of skills are to deal with it. How do we channel it? If I weren't anxious at least a little bit, I would never be able to be a scientist because anxiety helps us persist. It helps give us precision. It energizes us. It helps us care about excellence. I started life actually as a classical musician. Oh, wow. I, play, I played the oboe of all things. <laughs> a lot of people don't even know that. But you have to be a really on the obsessive spectrum to really, you know. And I sort of channeled all that when I fell in love with science and decided that this was my, my journey. So again, it's like, how do we channel it? How do we build the skills? What's our community around us? Because community is so important to help us manage it. All of those are, so I can't give you a number. <laughs> well, it's fascinating because when, when I'm thinking about my own life in terms of being you know, a matrimonial, a divorce attorney, a trial attorney, uh, someone who lives in a courtroom before the pandemic, you know, three, four, sometimes five times a week. And I think about exactly what you said in terms of the mindset and how that helps us to pursue a certain passion, a certain career, a hobby, whatever it may be. So I think that's a really important point. You could never have been an attorney, I would argue, without some, I don't know, you have, I don't know what your <laughs> colleagues are like, but because, because remember, if anxiety sends us into the future tense, it allows us to think about and prepare for that future. So anytime we're thinking about and preparing for the future, there's this little free zone of anxiety. We just don't call it that. We always pathologize it. That's where we mental health professionals have failed people because we haven't taught people to make this distinction between living with, you know, Kierkegaard, I hate to bring up Kierkegaard, <laughs> you know, but 180, 180 years ago, you know, the Danish philosopher, he wrote a whole book about anxiety. And one of the great quotes from that book is, he, whosoever learns to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. And we mental health professionals have failed people because we have not taught them the concept that there's a right way to be anxious, that it can be an ally. And like any ally, you need to negotiate with it, but it doesn't have to be a signal of danger or, or disease. No, I love that. Dr. Tracy, what is the practical difference between being anxious over something that we can control and being anxious over something out of our control? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. And, and often when anxiety does maybe veer over into an anxiety disorder, it's because, you know, sometimes life just throws us curveballs that no one can be expected to really, you know, necessarily master, you know, and I'm, sure. I'm not saying to people, ah, just change your mindset about anxiety. It's going to be okay. Life really, it's suffering, right? So much of life is suffering. Let's just like be real about that. We have started to equate mental health with the absence of emotional discomfort or struggle. But the truth is mental health is the ability to navigate the struggle that is fundamental to being a human on this planet. It's messy work being a human. So, you know, when we think about anxiety that's um, caused by things out of our control, all we can do in some ways is do our best 
see opportunities to make changes where they exist and focus on some self-care as well. And not the kind of self-care where you're, you know, putting your head in the sand all the time. And sure. listen, I like to binge watch, you know, a stream, my streaming services once in a while too. <laughs> you just need to take a step back and there's all sorts of things we do. We can get out of the future tense and take care of ourselves, you know, and there are better ways than others, but, but anxiety is a call to action. So, you know, I had an experience with my husband over the pandemic. He is a Broadway producer and a, and a TV and film producer as well. And you can imagine over the pandemic, he had just launched a show just a few months before. Difficult time, sure. It was, you know, lucky people problems, but it was, it was, you know, sure. it, had been a, it had been a decade in the making. So you can imagine like how that, right. So, and there've been some things around, around that experience that were clearly out of our control. But what you see when anxiety calls you, when it's this call that there's something to do, it's a call to action, it's a call to focus. He figured out, he, you know, he actually raised money and started a new company and started, you know, expanding some of his other focus. I was trying to support him through that. And I felt helpless. I felt overwhelming anxiety as there were some challenging things that occurred during that time. I found ways that I could feel a sense of focus action. And when I took action and when anyone takes action that's effective, anxiety goes down. It's telling you when you listen to it, okay, there's something I need to do. Let's see. If I do something that's effective, my anxiety will decrease. I'm getting more information. And so you can start to have that balance of taking action, knowing that sometimes you can't do anything, having self-care, reaching out to your community, getting support, doing all those things. But you have to ride that wave. Again, you cannot avoid it. You cannot just pretend it's a disease that needs to be eradicated. Anxiety is not going anywhere. And let me follow up to, to your example with your husband, obviously going through the pandemic. What are your tips? What is your advice to someone in a relationship, a marriage, to, for someone to support a partner or spouse who is going through a very anxious time in their life? Often our impulse when others are in emotional distress is to just fix the problem or make the feelings of your partner go away. And, uh, you know, we psychologists are often even more guilty of that because we, <laughs> that's, sort of, <laughs> that's sort of probably why we've become psychologists in the first place. And we could go into that whole that. But really the best thing you can do when someone is struggling with anxiety, just listen, just let, just be a sounding board before you try to fix anything. And that goes for our kids as well. And, you know, as, as a parent of a 10 and a 13 year old, I know you're a parent too, you know, so, you know, that our anxiety about our kids' anxiety, about our partner's anxiety, we just want to soothe ourselves a lot of the time. So we need to take that step back and listen and let them explore all the facets of what they're feeling before we try to fix it, right? And accept it. That it doesn't mean you're broken because you're overwhelmed with anxiety right now. Again, that's something we mental health professionals have, have, have sort of implied to people, if not explicitly told them. If you're struggling, you don't just need to immediately go to the psychiatrist and take some benzos and make it go away. That's not, that's not actually the answer for, for most people. So listen, be there, and then figure out how can I support this person in taking productive action that will let them do something with that anxiety if it's possible. And if not, what, do they, what kind of support do they need to sort of take themselves out of the future tense and remember that there are other positive possibilities they can pursue? And so really then you're a problem-solving partner, not a fix-it person to just make it go away. So those are, those are very two good, very starting points, non-judgmentally, non-judgmentally listening and then being a problem-solving partner. And then often you'll see that all sorts of possibilities open up from there. 
Dr. Tracy, you have a chapter in your book. It's called Comfortably Numb. And a section within the chapter, it's, it's called The Business of Dulling Pain. What do you think of the boom in medications and other products to really curb anxiety? I think it's a disaster. Not because some people don't need it. I think that there are people who suffer from anxiety disorders who can benefit from temporary use of some of these medications. But the problem is, is that they are so radically overprescribed. We have tens and tens of millions of prescriptions out there for people who don't even have anxiety disorders. And we don't educate people about the very real risks of benzodiazepines because synergistically, they can cause overdose deaths much more easily than we think. They are highly addictive. And as we take them for longer periods of time, anxiety actually often gets worse because you're not actually working through the anxiety when you're just dulling the experience. Now, the ways that science has shown us that benzodiazepines can be effective for some people suffering from anxiety disorders is when it's combined with cognitive behavioral and other gold standard therapies. So that means you take a benzodiazepine if your anxiety and maybe your life situation is just so overwhelming, you are not able to cope at that time. And again, no shame in the game because you know sometimes sure. you need that extra help. But then it should really be used for months instead of years and only when there's therapy because then therapy teaches you the skills to work through whatever's happening in your life so that the benzos or the, and which is the most common type of anti-anxiety medication, they become, you know, in the old adage, you know, give a person a fish, they'll eat for a day, teach them to fish, yeah. they'll eat for a lifetime. The benzos are the fish and cognitive behavioral therapies that teach you skills, lifelong skills of coping and problem solving. Those are learning to fish. So that, but, but I think that the proliferation of these medications, I don't think it's a coincidence that they've happened at the same time as the opioid crisis. I think it's a disaster. And I think that we have started to think that all we can aspire to when it comes to mental health is to be comfortably numb. And that's not mental health. Is it that they're prescribed too quickly? They're prescribed unnecessarily. They're prescribed without what you refer to is, you know, the, the therapy and really learning the life coping mechanisms, or is, is it a combination of all? All of, of the above, all of the above. And I think, again, most mental health professionals, psychologists and psychiatrists who would prescribe these meds and primary care physicians, I think their intentions are good. Unfortunately, it's this mindset that we have about the nature of anxiety, that it's dangerous, that has, and honestly, the, these powerful drug, these pharmaceutical companies that have put forward this idea that this is the best solution and underplayed the risks, just like in the opioid crisis, frankly. I think it's this culture that we've entered into, this disease story of mental illness that we have to completely blow out of the water. We have to be, we have to be almost more punk rock about mental health now because we have to challenge these ways of doing things. Because honestly, if they were working, I mean, I don't see signs that they're working. With more drugs and treatments, and great self-help and all this other stuff more than ever, mental health disorders are clearly on the rise. Kids are suffering more than ever. We are doing something wrong. We have to have the courage to question how we're approaching this. And you do exactly that in, in your book, Future Tense, which is terrific. Dr. Tracy, I want to ask you about electronic devices and social mm. media, because it's often said that these things really contribute to anxiety. Do you agree? And how, how would you describe the dynamic with social media and anxiety, and what's the remedy? 
whether it's for adults or kids. That's a lot there, Evan. I'm going to do my best. But I've, you know, I've thought very deeply about this because, you know, kids, you know, at the heart of a lot of what I do, you know, future tense is for everyone. But at the heart of what I do on many levels, it's about our youth. It's about the future of, of our society and of our world. And of course, youth are very maligned, right? We kind of, we talk about them, you know, Gen Z and millennials as these sort of screen addicted, you know, screens have destroyed a generation and they're all these kind of emotionally useless, fragile, you know, addicted kids, right? And 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 they're not tough and they don't, you know, I think that that's mostly wrong. (laughs) And I think we, you know, so I'm always very, like, I want to stand up for the kids, but here's the thing about screens. No technology is all bad or all good. We have in the media, what's very easy to do when we talk about some of the emerging research and concerns about screens and mental health is that the black and white views, those grab the headlines, right? So it's either screens have destroyed a generation or "Ah, everyone's just panicking about this. It's just like television and it's no different. So it's much more nuanced. And of course, I love to live in nuance and no one wants to hear nuance. But but (laughs) what I'll briefly say is that technology is not going away. So saying either, you know, so, so saying this extreme of screens have destroyed a generation and we have to ban all screens, this is not going to get us anywhere. So let's, what's going to get us somewhere? We have to help our kids become wise digital citizens. They need to understand the risks and there are some. I don't think that technology causes all anxiety, but I think it's an amplifier because what are our mobile devices? There are these giant escape machines. There are these giant doom scrolling, right? We just escape into them to avoid all uncomfortable feelings constant social comparison, doom scrolling till we're, you know, till we can't focus on the screens anymore. These are not helpful, but the reason they exist is because they support the bottom line of these companies. So this is a choice by these technology companies. And there's been a lot more awareness in just the past few years about how toxic these algorithms are and how they don't serve humanity at all. They just serve these companies making billions and billions of dollars. But I think we have to fight that from maybe a regulatory perspective. That's another, you know, I think there should be fiduciary <laughs> responsibility in these sure. companies, but that's another conversation. In the meantime, we have to arm ourselves and our kids with wisdom about what, what, what makes you, what brings you joy when you're using technology, what gets in the way, what's an opportunity cost. So I do allow my kids to be on screens to some degree. I allow my son in particular, he likes to play, you know, Minecraft and a couple of games, but, the, but but I also know that when he's on screens, he's not doing other things. So if it's getting in the way of his doing track after school, nope. which it wouldn't because luckily it's after school, he plays the piano and he composes. Is it, is, it an op- is it getting in the way of those things? Is it getting in the way of person-to-person connection in, in vivo <laughs> with sure. each other? Sure. No, you have to find that balance and help kids make those same choices. So it's about navigation. It's about education. I think we know when we feel worse when we're on screens, like when I'm on social media, I usually don't feel better afterwards. Start taking that as information and finding ways. But, but people, again, people are going to be different, but these conversations have to happen. And frankly, tech companies have to change and we might need to force them to change with some of the toxicity that is in these digital ecosystems. Is anxiety contagious, particularly within a family? Anxiety is a series of habits. That's why mindset makes such a difference. Anxiety is a series of ways of thinking about the world, about challenges, and then, beha- and then choices you make about how to cope. So I think in the sense that we families learn to talk about and cope with and have values around anxiety and other difficult emotions, yes, it's contagious. But 
And, you know, there's been some great, you know, if you look at some clinical case studies and people who've written wonderful books about their experiences growing up anxious, you also see that parental anxiety is conveyed in some very subtle ways. It's in that, you know, crossing the street and your dad just clutches your hand and you feel their anxiety. Kids are like sharks in the best sense. They smell like a drop of blood in the water miles away (laughs) when it comes to our emotions. So hiding things from kids, if we think we're doing a great job when it comes to emotions and conflict, I mean, you must know this as uh, someone who (laughs) works with couples and marriages. You're not hiding it from kids. No. So- Children so are incredibly, I, incredibly yeah. smart, incredibly perceptive. So the way to whatever degree that we can as parents have, not to have TMI, you know, put emotional burdens on kids, but to follow our kids' lead and to say, oh, you've noticed that there's anxiety happening in this, you know, we're struggling with this as a family right now. Let's have those conversations. Let's, let's know that that doesn't mean that we're broken as a family. What can we do to support each other? So, so I think that yes, anxiety can be deeply set into a family system, but that doesn't mean that it's contagious. Again, like a disease, there's that disease story, right? So that we have to eradicate it to fix it. No, I mean, we can always come out and through and probably be stronger in the end when we face it together as a family. Dr. Tracy, how can we tell the difference between good anxiety and bad anxiety? All anxiety is good. It's the ways that we cope with it that get in our way. And that's, again, when it starts veering into an anxiety disorder. There's a great study that came out of uh, the Yale Child Study Center just a few years ago, and they've been, de- they've been actually replicating this. Leibowitz and colleagues, they developed a great intervention for child anxiety, so clinical anxiety disorders in kids called SPACE, which stands for Supportive Parenting for Anxious Children. And what they um, have typically done at the Yale Child Study Center is you'll give anxious kids gold standard cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a great solution. It works for a lot of kids. It helps reduce these anxiety symptoms. But they actually did studies where they started not giving the kids any therapy at all. They only gave the parents therapy. And what did they teach? And what did they teach? What did they teach the parents to do? They They taught them essentially to shift their attitude about their kids' anxiety so that they stopped over accommodating so their kids' fears and, and, and overwhelming anxiety. So say you have a socially anxious kid, maybe they're um, also separation anxiety. They've refused to go to school. They want to sleep with you every night. It's getting in the way of their ability to function and be happy. A lot of parents with all the best intentions will, oh, you don't have to go to school today. It's too much for you. You know, that's okay. You can sleep with me every night and you'll sleep between mommy and daddy in bed. And, and that's just what you need. And we want to comfort our kids. We all do, right? But that is actually the the most unhelpful thing we can do when kids have gotten into a vicious cycle of anxiety and anxiety disorders. So space teaches parents to stop letting the kids stay home from school, stop letting them sleep every night in the bed. But gradually, not that you have to throw them in the deep end, but little by little, you support them in learning better coping skills in in gradually getting back to school. You You know, here's why we have to, and working through the anxiety instead of around it. And after six weeks of this, of teaching parents to, to really kind of think differently about anxiety, that it's not unhelpful, that it's actually, we can still work with this. Those kids showed clinical reductions in anxiety disorder severity, comparable to if they got therapy themselves. Wow. And so it's remarkable, right? Not to, say, pa- sure. not to parent blame, but to just make this point that our view, really what shifted was the parents' view about anxiety and how they helped the kid cope with it. The anxiety didn't, we didn't eradicate the anxiety. So that's why I say there's no bad anxiety in that sense. Even though anxiety disorders are terrible and cause a lot of suffering, just to really make that point clear, because I don't want to underestimate that as well. Sure. 
And you recently wrote a, a piece in an article for Psychology Today, which was terrific. In the article, you talk about that anxiety is a, fe- a feature of being human and not a bug. You go on to talk about, and you, you talk about this in the book, Future Tense, as well. And in the article, you go on to say that anxiety, it's not going anywhere because it's not an illness to be eradicated or defeated. Rather, it's a powerful emotion that evolved so that we could learn to put it to good use. So tell us more about how to change our belief about anxiety. I think one great way to change our belief is to put it into action, right? Because seeing is believing. So if you think about anxiety as inhabiting the same space as creativity, all of a sudden something shifts in your mind. And if you talk to any performer, any artist, any Broadway performer, any, anyone who creates something, if they don't feel anxiety and sometimes throwing up in the bathroom before they go on stage to do their big, their big solo, something's wrong. They know that they're anxious when they care. They're anxious when their body is preparing to act and they know that they can channel it and they've gotten practice doing it because that's the only way you can really create something. Anxiety inhabits that same space because it's creativity is the future tense as well. It's about creating something that has never existed before. It's about that space between where you are now and where you want to be and anxiety inhabits that space. And it does these things when you start to think of it that way, you're like, oh, I'm really anxious about going on that podcast. I'm going to take a breath and I'm going to actually know that this is my, you know, it's my heart pumping blood, right? And oxygen to my brain. That's why I, I have butterflies in my stomach and my heart's racing because I'm preparing to actually focus and perform at peak. You make that shift. They, do, they did a study, um, Harvard, I think it was Jameson and colleagues, 2018. And they actually just published a, a, a series based on a series of paper expanding on this in nature just a couple weeks ago. And there's a wonderful article in Scientific American about it. And what they did is they took socially anxious people and they taught that they, they threw them into the deep end about to do something that was very hard for them to do a public speech with no preparation. And But what they did is in half of the group, they just told the folks and taught them to think of anxiety as a way that their body was preparing to go at full steam, that it wasn't a danger signal. They weren't about to have a panic attack. It was, it was them about to perform at their best for this very hard task. And they taught half the people that, half the people they didn't. And don't you know, the half that just learned for 15 minutes to think of their anxiety in that way, they performed better, their heart rates were slower, and their blood pressure was lower. So oh. they look like people who were primed to do their best. We can do this on a daily basis, and we will see the results, and it will become a new habit and a new practice. So I think that that, that remembering that it is your body preparing, you know, we have higher levels of dopamine when we're anxious. That's the feel-good hormone that helps us work towards positive goals. We have higher levels of oxytocin when we're anxious. That's the social bonding hormone that helps us reach out to others when we need support. It primes us to want to socially connect, which is one of the best ways to actually support our mental health. So anxiety is serving us. And when you practice that and see it play out in your life, you will get better at it. You will find the ways that anxiety truly is a good force in your life. We touched on the pandemic and look, the pandemic could be a whole podcast episode in and of itself, but how has the pandemic changed our views about anxiety and perhaps what we're anxious about? That's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, there was this funny thing that happened over the pandemic that was a double-edged sword, which is that it became okay not to be okay emotionally, right? So we were talking about it more than ever before. We were accepting that, you know, sometimes it's, you have to take a mental health day. 
right? And you, so, so we were having these conversations, but the problem with the, the double edge of that is that it started to veer into this idea that unless we were emotionally comfortable all the time, we just needed to, we just needed to like completely disengage from the challenge in front of us. So it became this extreme, you know, it's sort of, we're now at this extreme again, where it's either people saying, just toughen up and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps in this old fashioned sure. kind of way, or, oh no, 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 you, if you're emotionally uncomfortable, you have to take a mental health day immediately. And so we've lost some of this grit and the sense of anti-fragility that we actually have to challenge ourselves. So I think the pandemic sort of put us in a crucible of that, those extremes. Like, it, I mean, we, we went through many extremes, I think, in the sure. crucible, but that's one of them. And so I think we have to pull back from that and understand, you know, maybe we don't need to be emotionally safe all the time. Maybe that's actually working against us. How do we talk about and figure out a path towards mental health that's active, that's about working to the positive, like skill building, not just eradicating these uncomfortable emotions. So that's, I think, that the, the real task that we have in front of us now. Okay, mental health is out there. Funding is greater than ever before. It was actually on the back of mental health that the gun, the recent gun legislation passed. It was sort of like, oh, mentally ill people are so dangerous. We can't let them have guns. So we better also give people a lot of extra mental health support, which is great, except it's, you know, it's actually pathologizing mental illness. People who are mentally ill are much more likely to be the victims of violence than perpetrators. But nonetheless, we have these great resources, but I think we have to have completely different conversations about mental health. Stop making people feel fragile. Push back against this industry, this mental health industrial complex, honestly, that even if we're well-intentioned is making us feel fragile, is making us feel like we can't cope, we can't engage with these difficult experiences. We have to, sh we have to make this shift now. Tracy, I want to ask you about mental health and accessibility. As a matrimonial and divorce attorney, one of the things I hear from my clients is, Evan, I called five therapists. I'm on yeah. five waiting lists and people are yeah. booked out for months and months. Yeah. Or I tried to get my child into therapy and the therapist is booked up. And the next therapist I called, he or she's booked up as well. I know you're the founder of Wise Therapeutics. Tell us your work at that company and also your thoughts on how to make mental health treatment and intervention much more accessible in 2022 for parents and children as we look ahead? It's a, it's a crucial question and thank you for bringing it up. So Wise Therapeutics is a digital therapeutics company. We're um, very much on the cusp of some exciting developments in, in this industry because for the first time you can have FDA approval for a digital therapeutic much like you would for a pharmaceutical intervention or other kinds of devices. And so at WISE, we take science, much of it foundational science I've conducted over the past 15 years now, and we're creating mobile games that are clinically validated to reduce stress, anxiety, and, and we also have pipeline products for depression, addiction, and other, and other disease categories. So again, we're talking about mental illnesses um, when, when we're talking about this. So the reason that I wanted to found a company around games for mental health is that, you know, I think that digital by definition will increase accessibility, right? But where the field has been going is that we've essentially made cognitive behavioral therapies and some of these great treatments that are time intensive, still expensive, still hard to, you know, get professionals around. We've, we've lowered the bar a little, but they're still not accessible for everyone. Just because you put it on a screen doesn't sure. mean it's accessible. The second thing 
is that a lot of these techniques are not actually optimized for screens because part of our problem is that we're on screens too much. <laughs> I, mean, we need, right? I mean, we need to, and you know, and you don't want to take the place of what, of really the remarkable healing that can happen in face-to-face -face interactions completely. You know, you want teletherapy, but you don't want it to completely take the place. And so what we've done with WISE is we've created very brief mobile games. So they're highly engaging, five to 10 minutes a day, a few days a week. So it's not keeping you on screens. Clinical validation, so it's not snake oil because there is a lot of snake oil out there. So science first. And there are different kinds of intervention. These are mindset and nudge interventions. So what you're doing with, with some of the tools that we're using is you're shifting how people process information about their life, how they think about their life. There are these little levers that we have with, you know, it's kind of the filter we put in the, on the world and the kinds of information we take in. So what the games that we've developed in, and there are other kinds of tools out there like this is it helps you shift how you're viewing the world around you so that you can either feel better in the moment or you can benefit from other treatments so that your mindset is not, you know, so on alarm all the time that any kind of potential threat in the environment, you're, you're just going to continue to be anxious and avoid and you won't be able to benefit from good treatments out there. So I think we have to develop more of these brief interventions I think we have to really make accessible treatments that are low cost, that, you know, that are, that people in every community, community can get, but that's not going to be enough, honestly, because sometimes you need full-fledged therapy. So we need to treat mental health like health. So insurance coverage needs to be better. We need to, we need to keep fighting for that. With the, actually the gun, legisl gun legislation and the expansion of access to mental health resources for lower income people, there's going to be a lot more available. And so that will be really remarkable. 988 is a new, it's like a 911, but for mental health, so that if you have a mental health crisis, you don't call 911 because we know that police coming or certain kinds of personnel coming to, to deal with a crisis are often not the most helpful. So we're expanding that ecosystem. But what about people who are middle or upper middle class? You, it, as you said, there's waiting lists. It's still very, very expensive. We, we need to completely stop putting... Uh, kind of almost ghettoizing this sort of idea that mental health is a separate thing and we just have to integrate it into all health care. So, so many things that need to be done. Dr. Tracy, this was absolutely fantastic. I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Your book, Future Tense, it's a must read. Tell everybody where they can find the book and find your articles and everything that you have going on. Thank you. You can find the book um, anywhere you can buy books, but go to your local book, small bookstore if you can, because those are, we want to support those. And also drtracyphd.com is my website and you can get to the book there and read about some of my research and other, other writings as well. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Evan. What a pleasure speaking with you. Episode 44. This was the show. Dr. Tracy, author of the incredible new book, Future Tense. She was outstanding. Great spot. Dave, Make a note, we need to get Dr. Tracy back on the show. Producer Dave of the you Boston bet. Podcast Network, making it happen. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Summer's almost over, but the Shine On mission marches on. You got that right. And Dave, thank you to you and all the listeners. And you can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and the one and only Pod 617. And wherever else you listen to your podcast, Follow the podcast, subscribe, and send in your comments and questions to Evan at shineanddivorce.com. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon. Mm -hmm.